What I hope you'll all come away with is the, the most important thing from Psalm 110 is that our king is also a priest. That's the main idea. But we're going to say a lot more than that today, but if you leave with that, great. <laughs> okay, so in Psalm 110, we recognize that not only is David a king, he is also a prophet. And prophets are God's mouthpieces. They relay God's messages to his people. And many of these messages are prophetic. So they are messages about what will happen in the future. And in this psalm, David reports a future event. It was, a, it was at least future for him. He reports a conversation that will take place in God's throne room between God and his anointed king, the Messiah. So Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm, and we get that word messiah or messianic from the word we saw last week in Psalm 2. That's the word anointed. In Hebrew, the word anointed sounds something like Mashiach, so you can see why we say messiah or messianic. So prophecies that refer to the coming promised king are messianic. And we know Psalm 110 is messianic for a couple reasons. The first is that the religious leaders of Jesus' day admitted that Psalm 110 was messianic. So we can see that reading the psalm this way is a tradition that Israelite had. But two, we know it's messianic because of how the New Testament writers use the psalm. So many Israelites would have read the psalm exactly as we do, as a prophecy about their coming king. But this prophecy contained a mystery that they couldn't untangle, a mystery that would be revealed later, but they would have to wait for the apostles to untangle. So similar to what we learned last week with the resurrection in Psalm 2, there is another mystery about the king of glory hidden in plain sight. That's the way D.A. Carson talks about it. So at this point in their history, Israel doesn't have the key to unlocking the meaning of this mystery. The New Testament writers were given that key in the Holy Spirit, and they have unlocked these ancient prophecies, mysteries for us, so that now we can look back and say, wow, wow, God, how wise and amazing you are, and what a plan you had from the beginning. But even though there were mysteries the Old Testament prophets could not untangle, they still knew so much. I mean, look at what we've uncovered already about the King of Glory. They had enough. They had enough information to believe God's words and to wait and hope for their king to come and restore all that had been lost in Eden. Peter speaks of the, their experience in this way. In 1 Peter 1:10 through 12, he says, These Old Testament prophets searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. But it was revealed to them, it was revealed to the Old Testament prophets, that they were not serving themselves but us. So those dear Old Testament brothers were not given the clarity that we have been given, but how they wanted to know what we know, but by obediently recording God's words, they served us, and they served us so well. So let's look now at what David predicted about the King of Glory in Psalm 110. Now, since I've tried to kind of recreate 
the experience of Old Testament faithful, faithful Israelites in this class. I want to divide up the prophecies of this psalm between first, what Israel could have discerned from the psalm, and then second, what we now know about the psalm, about the coming king of glory from this psalm. But first, a brief word about the structure of Psalm 110. So the center of this psalm, it's seven verses, and the verse four is at the center, and it is the central message of the psalm. The declaration it contains probably shocked Israel. But here it is at the center of the psalm, delivered as an oracle from God to the newly enthroned king of glory. Look at it with me. It says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we're going to see how this king as priest is God's vehicle for, for mediating his blessing to the ends of the earth. This king priest stands at the center of the psalm, mediating his blessing for his, for his people on the one hand, but cursing for his enemies on the other. And then you can see this, on either side of this central verse, there are three sets of parallel verses leading up to the oracle and then leading away from the oracle. So verses one and seven are parallel. They're both a picture of the king. Verse one is a picture of the king's divinity, and verse seven is a picture of the king's humanity. Verse two announces the king's rule over his enemies. And then verse 6 shows this king priest exercising that rule and dominion over his enemies. And then verses 3 and 5 both speak of the same day, the day of his power in verse 3, and then the day of his wrath in verse 5. But they are speaking about it from two very different perspectives. Verse 3 is a picture of the king's army and all the faithful who have joined the king and become part of the woman's offspring. But verse 5 shows us the snake's army. His offspring are the armies of rebel nations that he has deceived into fighting the king of glory. So there's a beautiful balance to the psalm, but it all centers on the snake crusher's dual role of king and priest. Okay, 10 things now that Israel could have read about, could have learned about their king from this psalm. So first, they knew something we've already established, that Psalm 110 was about their promised king. And we know this not only because of ties this psalm has with so many of the other previous prophecies we've covered, but also because the religious leaders of the day admitted as much when Jesus asked them who this psalm was about, they admitted it was about David's son and heir, the coming king. Okay, two, they also recognize that Psalm 110 recapitulates things they already know that they should expect about the king of glory, namely his kingship. Okay, the word scepter, we first saw that in Genesis 49, and then we saw it again in Numbers 24. Well, here it's recycled in verse 2 along with the word rule. So this king is given dominion. He reigns. He reigns over everything, including his enemies. And here we should remember that God's design has always been for his image bearers to rule and have dominion over the earth. We saw that in the beginning with Adam. We saw it again with Noah. Then Abraham fathered a nation with kings that ruled over many enemies. All these stories hint at what is to come in this king who has dominion over the whole earth. 
Third, Israel would have also recognized from this psalm that the king of glory would have a position of power, possibly even equality with God. And we can see this in four places. So first, verse 1, the Lord, capitals, all capitals, that's Yahweh, says to my Lord. So David is speaking about a heavenly conversation that he is privy to. He hears God, Yahweh, addressing the promised king. And David knows that this king will be called his son and heir. But he also recognizes that he is superior to him. Although he is his son and heir, David will bow before him, calling him Lord and Master. So we see his divinity even in that. But even more telling is what Yahweh says to the king, also in verse 1. He offers him a position of honor, power, and equality when he says, sit at my right hand. There is no more exalted position than this. The king sits in God's presence in the place of privilege. And all the privilege this position implies is illustrated in the psalm, but the New Testament will flush out just how exalted this position is. Blessed as they were by God, this position was never offered to David, never offered to Abraham, and it has never been offered even to angels. So the person who gets to sit here is far superior to everyone and, and everything else because he is equal with God. The king's divinity is also hinted at when we see in verse 2 that it is Yahweh who sends out the king's scepter. Yahweh and his king work together as one to express the king's dominion. And then in verse five, we see that God assumes the position at the right hand of the king. When the king goes out in power to judge his enemies, God is at his right hand. And together, again, acting as one, they judge the nations. All these hints in Psalm 110 foreshadow the divinity of the coming king of glory. Number four. Israel also knew that the king of glory would rule from Israel's throne in Zion. That's in verse 2. And we saw that last week in Psalm 2 as well. Number 5, Israel recognized that the king's dominion, that the king would have dominion over all enemies. Okay, this triumph is guaranteed in verse 1, where David overhears God's word to the snake crusher, just as Adam and Eve had heard God's word, overheard God's word to the snake. So Yosef Zhakovich, he's a professor at the Master's Seminary, draws out a parallel that I'm going to paraphrase for you now. But first, remember what we heard in Genesis 3.15. God told the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So in the garden and to the snake, God announced the origin of enmity and conflict. But here... We're not in the garden anymore. We're in heaven's throne room. And he's not speaking to the snake. He's speaking to the snake crusher. And he is proclaiming the end of that conflict, the end of enmity, where when he says, I will make your enemies a footstool. And then what follows this oracle is a depiction of the war to end all wars. The battle depicted in this psalm is the culmination of that enmity that God announced to the snake so long ago. This is the final battle when at last all enemies are subdued. 
and the king of glory extends his reign over the whole earth, as it says in verse 6. In verse 3, this day is called the day of your power, and in verse 5, it's the day of your wrath. And on this day, verse 5 again, the king of glory will shatter kings and execute judgment. Unless you think these enemies are innocent, that word judgment helps us see that this is God applying the law for their sin and rebellion. He is cursing them just as he warned he would do. This is justice. He will shatter chiefs in verse 6. Other translations say shatter heads. And what does that remind you of? That recalls the crushing and the bruising of the snake's head, who is the spiritual father and the enslaving king of all these lesser chiefs and kings. And that shatter language is reminiscent of bruise and crush and destroy. And like last week in Psalm 2, where we read the king will dash his enemies to pieces, here he shatters them. And so we see once more that the king of glory will have absolute triumph, not just over the snake, but over all his offspring. But because the themes of mercy in God's story are as ever-present as the themes of justice in God's story, I want to point something else out from Israel's history. So when God punished Israel for their rebellion, we saw this last week in the book of Judges. Remember, he, they would sin, and then he would send in enemies to plunder them. So when God did this, he would often scatter his people into the nations around them, where they would then repent, worship God, and begin to, have, to, to tell the people around them about the God of Israel. And many from those enemy nations would then hear God's words and believe. And many of God's enemies in this way would exchange their curse for a blessing. That is Ruth's story. And that is Naaman's story. So in 2 Kings 5, we find a young Israelite slave girl in the household of the enemy. Naaman is the commander of the king of Syria's army, one of Israel's enemies. And he has leprosy. Well, this little girl, who the Syrians had carried off during one of their plundering raids on Israel, tells Naaman's wife about the great prophet Elijah, Elisha, excuse me, who lives in Israel, saying he could heal Naaman. Well, Naaman goes, and after some skepticism, he does do exactly what Elisha tells him to do and is miraculously healed. And afterward, he testifies this from 2 Kings 5, 15 through 18. He says, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. And from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. So in Naaman, we see one of those rulers and kings plotting to overthrow God and his people. We see him turn and become God's servant. And there are more of these Gentile conversions. They are all across the pages of scripture, and we should assume that there are many, many, many more that we don't even know about. Just as the Apostle John will later say that all the books in the world couldn't contain all the things Jesus did. Well, neither could they contain all the many acts of mercy God has performed across the centuries of history. So when you read these prophecies about the king of glory's crushing and shattering his enemies, 
don't forget what you know about God and what you have experienced from him. He is just, yes, and he is merciful. And until the day of the king's wrath, which he consistently warns us about, which he is warning us about right here in this psalm, until that day, any of his enemies can turn and kiss the king. And they, too, will be blessed, like Adam and Eve, like Noah, like Abraham, like David, and as we'll come to see, like the king of glory himself. Because number six, Psalm 110, is a blessing. And Israel would have understood this. God is blessing the king of glory when he gives him rule and dominion, just as he did with Adam and Eve when he blessed them. And as he did with David, God will bless the king of glory by giving him rest from his enemies. He will give the king of glory the rest which he established way back at creation when there were no enemies, but just the blessing of filling and ruling. We also know in verse 3 that this king has been fruitful. His kingdom has multiplied. He has a large, large company of faithful people. So all the components of blessing are right here in this psalm. We have rule and rest and fruitfulness. Number seven, Israel would also have understood from earlier prophecies, but here now specifically from verse seven, that this king, even with his divine association and divine power, is human. He will drink from a brook. That is a very human thing to do. He will be thirsty as any human king who is pursuing his enemies and exercising might in battle would be. And I think we're supposed to recall Gideon here, whose fainting army drank from a spring on their way to fight the Midianites. Okay, remember those who lifted their heads and scooped the water um, in their hands to their mouths rather than just diving in like a dog and lapping it up? They were the ones chosen to fight the battle with the Midianites. All right, three final details Israel would have discerned from this prophecy. Number eight, the king of glory has an army of faithful people who, in verse 3, offer themselves freely to fight with their king. And that line there actually alludes to another judge, this time Deborah, who sang along with Barak of Israel's victory over their Canaanite enemies in Judges 5-2. She sings, the people offered themselves willingly. And here we just see that just like the snake has offspring, he has raised up to fight for him. The king of glory has his own people who joyfully volunteer to fight for their king. And we should recall all those heroes of old in our story so far, who by their faith in God's words have become the children of God. Look what this army is wearing in verse 3. They are wearing holy garments, and this could be a reference to their own priesthood. So part of Israel's covenant with the Lord included the mission of being a kingdom of priests. So in Exodus 19.5, God had said to Israel, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A priest is a mediator of God's blessing. Remember God wanted to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham's offspring? 
Well, he will very specifically do that through the king of glory. But his plan was also to use Abraham's other offspring, the nation of Israel, to be a beacon of light to the pagan nations around them, a city on a hill beckoning the world to come and worship the great God of Israel. And we saw that happen just for a moment last week in the time of King Solomon. Remember, the kings from the earth all came bearing gifts and desiring an audience so they could hear the God-given words of wisdom that Solomon spoke. That was Israel functioning as God's priest. Well, here, an army of priests is ready to march into battle with their king. Number nine, Israel would have recognized that this battle is the final battle that will usher in the new and better Eden. So in the psalm, the king priest is enthroned in heaven. He is in heaven with God. And then we see this expression, from the womb of the morning, and that is a really poetic way to speak of the sunrise, which happens in the east, where the entrance to Eden was. It's also where the entrance to the tabernacle and later the temple would be. All descriptions of where God lives with his people. So here, God's people are coming from the east with their king to fight for him. The language suggests that these people are with their king, and they're going to come with him to dominate his enemies, to bring peace to the world, and usher in the new creation. That's what this psalm depicts, the final battle that will finally bring peace to the world. That expression, the dew of your youth will be yours, is likely a reference to the king's um, eternality. He will perpetually have the strength and the vigor of his youth. He will perpetually exercise dominion with all his people at his side. You know, I said in the first week of class that God's plan has always been to fill the earth with his image bearers and with the beauty of Eden. And in these verses, we can see he is doing that. He will finish off all the enemies and then all his holy people in holy garments who love and serve him will be by his side forever in a world of rest. But finally, Israel would have learned something surprising, very surprising to them from this prophecy, something they would never have predicted. They would learn that their promised king would also be a priest. And not just any priest, but a priest in a new order, not the Levitical order as God had prescribed in his law, but a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So we need to talk about Melchizedek. He's that mysterious figure who very suddenly appears before Abraham in Genesis 14. So let me give you a little bit of background to that story. In Genesis 14, a battle between four kings on one hand and five on the other takes place in the valley of Siddim, which we're told has a bunch of deadly tarpets. Well, the four kings are victorious, and the other five kings and their armies just begin to flee for their lives. Many of them fall into these tar pits, but they leave their cities and their people vulnerable. Cities like Sodom and Gomorrah are left exposed. So the four kings then plunder Sodom and Gomorrah, and they run off with all their possessions and many of their people, including Lot, Abraham's nephew. 
Well, Abraham finds out about the abduction of his nephew, and he takes 318 trained men from his household to pursue these four kings. And the odds really don't look good. I wonder if Gideon actually copied Abraham's battle plan when he pursued the Midianites. Because we have a small force here. This is not even an army, just men from Abraham's household. And they are pursuing four kings, each with his own army. And they chase these armies for a great distance, and they surprise them at night with an attack on multiple fronts. Again, like Gideon will later do with the Midianites. The enemies then flee some more. They run all the way up to Damascus. So by this point, they have traveled well over 100 miles, but Abraham tirelessly pursues them and is victorious over all of them. He collects Lot, and then he and his men begin the long trek back home with all the rescued people and all the possessions and loot from the four armies. So we should just pause here and note something. We can see that already God is blessing Abraham, okay? He's turned him into really an impressive household. He has 318 men he can just summon to go to war with him. So he, he has acquired some wealth here. We also see God subduing Abraham's en enemies. So he's giving him rest, and he's cursing those who curse him. And in general, he is making Abraham's name very great on the earth, as he promised he would do. Well, when Abraham gets back to the land of Canaan, the king of Sodom hears about his success, and he comes out to meet him in the valley of Shava. And here, Moses makes an interesting textual note that this valley will later be called the King's Valley, which is adjacent to the place David will build his palace in Jerusalem. So Abraham is, has an encounter here in the King's Valley. All right, so the king of Sodom comes out to meet Abraham. And then the story is just very suddenly interrupted. Suddenly, Melchizedek is also on the scene, and he dominates the next three verses before we hear anything else again from the king of Sodom. So he appears, and the narrative shifts to Melchizedek. He comes out to the valley bringing bread and wine, and these are just table staples. Abraham's men and all the people they rescued are no doubt famished and parched from their long journey and from their fighting, so Melchizedek blesses them with a feast. Then he does something surprising. He pronounces a blessing on Abraham. This is Abraham. Okay, Abraham has already been directly blessed by God himself. He was already becoming a great name on the earth. Who is this figure who seems to stand above him to mediate God's blessing to him? Well, Melchizedek is the king of Jerusalem or at least of the city that will become Jerusalem. In the land of the Canaanites, this city is simply called Salem, or Shalom, which makes it the city of peace. So not only is Melchizedek the king of Jerusalem, he is the king of peace. And his name, his very name, means king of righteousness. So wow, the king of righteousness and peace reigning in Jerusalem bringing a feast of bread and wine to a weary Abraham, and then mediating God's blessing to him. Do you begin to see the significance here? There's more, because Melchizedek is more than a king. He is also a priest of God Most High. Now, that is not the same name, Yahweh, that we are accustomed to seeing for God at this point. 
But in verse 22, Abraham will use that same name for God. So we realize they're talking about the same God here. Melchizedek is definitely a priest of the one and only God who has chosen to bless Abraham. He is God's priest in Jerusalem before Israel is even a nation. And as God's priest, Melchizedek pronounces God's blessing on Abraham, and then he turns and glorifies God for delivering Abraham's enemies into his hand. He is mediating between the two. Well, for his part, Abraham recognizes the greatness of Melchizedek. He knows he's in the presence of somebody exalted, and he pays him a tithe. He gives him 10% of everything he has. And then Melchizedek simply disappears, and the scene shifts back as suddenly as it shifted away to the king of Sodom, who we just like left hanging there. And the contrast couldn't be greater. Abraham does not show the same honor to the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom does not bless Abraham. Following the customs of the day, the king of Sodom just says, you keep all the loot, give me the people. And Abraham says, no, I have sworn to God that I will not take so much as a strap, a sandal strap from you, lest you claim that you made me rich. Abraham wants God to have all the glory for making him great. So, and that's the end of the story. But in the space of those three verses, we met an impressive king priest ruling from Jerusalem, the seat of power for our coming king of glory. And we notice that the pillars of Melchizedek's kingdom are, as his name and role suggest, righteousness and peace. And given the sinful state of humanity and the raging conflict between the snake and the woman, this is what humanity craves most, a kingdom of righteousness and peace. Melchizedek is the first time we meet a priest in the Bible. And as important as the priesthood will become in Israel, we should note that this first priest is not from the line of Levi. This priest predates the Levitical priest. I mean, he predates Levi by hundreds of years. So I think Melchizedek's brief appearance in the story is there to suggest that humanity needs more than a king. We don't just need a snake crusher. We need someone to stand in God's presence for us and to represent God before for us, to represent us before God. We need someone to mediate his blessing to us. That's what we need, a mediator between God and man. We need more than a king. We need a king priest like Melchizedek. We spoke briefly about Israel's call to be a kingdom of priests. This is a whole nation that would mediate God's blessing to the world. But because Israel themselves were sinners, they also needed a priest for themselves. So within the nation, God instituted a priesthood to work and keep the tabernacle, much like Adam was to work and keep the garden. And like Adam and Eve were to fill the earth and pass their blessing onto their offspring, the priests were to pass God's blessing onto his people. So remember Jacob's 12 sons? Joseph was one, Judah was another. Well, Levi was another of Jacob's sons, and God chose his line of descendants to fill these exalted positions of priest. Only those descending from Levi could serve as priest in the tabernacle. 
God then instructed Moses to anoint his brother Aaron to be the high priest and then declared that only those with direct descent from Aaron could serve in the role of high priest. As high priest, Aaron alone could enter directly into God's presence in the interior of the tabernacle where he would atone for Israel's sins. He would offer the necessary sacrifices and then he would purify everything with blood. And then he would stand before God as the people's representative. And then he would go and stand before the people as God's representative, where he would pronounce God's blessing on them. This is what his blessing sounded like. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The high priest, that role, was an exalted position in Israel because he is a mediator between God and man. Even Aaron's high priestly garments suggest how exalted this position was. He wore a long linen robe with an ephod that had 12 uh, precious gems in it. He actually had a crown of gold on his head, and the names of the tribes of Israel were inscribed on two onyx stones that he wore on his shoulder pieces. And Israel was commanded to honor the institution of the priesthood by paying a tithe, a 10% offering of all their wealth to the Levites who served them by working and keeping the tabernacle and by being the mediators of God's blessing to them. So just like Abraham had honored Melchizedek by giving him a tithe, so the Israelites now honored the ones who stood before God for them with a tithe. So the priesthood, this is an exalted institution, and it is an ancient one. It was established in the wilderness hundreds of years after Melchizedek, but hundreds of years before the kingship. You know, one other curious thing that I haven't mentioned about Melchizedek is that in the account, he has no genealogy. He literally just appears and then disappears from the pages of scripture. And the fact that he, his genealogy is un unaccounted for is instructive. So Bible readers are very accustomed to knowing all of our main characters' ancestry and their progeny, right? I mean, the Bible loves a genealogy. So the lack of one here is suggestive, at least literarily, that Melchizedek has no beginning and no end. It's almost like he has been and will forever continue in this role of king-priest of Jerusalem. That's how the author of Hebrews will later argue for the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood, showing that it is necessary for the king-priest to continue forever in this role of mediator, and that because of that, he has to be from a different line. He can't be from the line of Levi. So, it is no arbitrary choice then when we get back to Psalm 110 that God announces that the king of glory will also be a priest in the line of Melchizedek. If he is to be a priest forever, he too can have no beginning or end. Also, Melchizedek is a superior priest to the Levites. The Levites served in their roles as priests for hundreds of years, and I say served, but served themselves is a more accurate description of what most of them did. When we get to the book of 1 Samuel, God actually pronounces judgment on Aaron's family for their abuse of power 
in their roles of priest and high priest. In Samuel's boyhood, the sons of Eli, the high priest, made a, just made a mockery of the priesthood and of the sacrificial system that God had instituted. They would irreverently steal the best meat from the sacrifices so they could eat it. They got fat on the offerings of the people they were to be serving and blessing. They would take the best meat by threat or force or violence. And to add to their mockery of God, they were serial adulterers. Eli's sons were actually sleeping with the women who served at the entrance to the tabernacle. And Eli, their father and high priest, did not stop them. And God was angry. He had established the tabernacle and the priesthood because of the problem of sin. They, these priests were to atone for Israel's sins, but the priests were as bad and, as, and in many ways they were worse than the people that God had entrusted to their care. So God told Eli he was going to strip the priestly line away from his family and give it to another who would serve God faithfully. So in 1 Samuel 2.35, God promised to build this new priest a shore house to go in and out before the Lord's anointed forever. Does that sound familiar? It's so similar to David's blessing of an eternal kingship. But here he promises a new and eternal priesthood. So as early as 1 Samuel, we recognize that the Levitical priesthood is terminally flawed and doomed to be replaced. So when Israel heard Psalm 110, they may have realized that their coming king would also be their high priest from a superior order to that of the Levitical line. All right, Israel could have gleaned all these things just by reading David's prophecy. But what would have been harder for them to understand? Those mysteries we talked about earlier, but the things that we now know with clarity from the New Testament writer are these three things I have on your paper. First, the snake crusher would ascend to heaven. Okay, Israel did not clearly see that after the snake crusher's arrival on earth and before he is declared king, he would first ascend into heaven. But we see this in Psalm 110. The snake crusher is in heaven with God. How did he get there? He has ascended after leaving the earth. Israel also didn't understand that the, their king, their snake crusher, would have to ascend to heaven in order to be, be declared king. And there were hints of both these things. His ascension is what we call when he returns to heaven, and his exaltation to the kingship in this psalm, but also from a later prophet. So Daniel had a similar vision, which he records in Jan Daniel chapter 7. It goes like this. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days. So this human is like riding the clouds of heaven up into the throne room where he stands before the ancient of days. That's God. And the ancient of days gives him dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. 
Israel assumed that the snake crusher would be exalted. When I say exalted, that means crowned king. So they assumed that the snake crusher would be crowned king on earth. And they are not wrong. But Israel assumed that when the snake crusher arrived, he would immediately defeat all of his enemies and then assume the throne of the earthly Jerusalem. But here God gives him the exalted place, not on earth, but in heaven. His kingdom is not yet an earthly one, but a heavenly kingdom. And Peter opens our eyes. He reveals this mystery to us in his sermon at Pentecost from Acts 2, where he tells his fellow Israelites that David foresaw both the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus when he wrote Psalm 110. He tells his brothers that this Jesus, whom they killed, is very much alive, and he has ascended to heaven where God has declared him to be king. But we have to ask the question, if the king of glory has been exalted and is reigning from heaven, why are there still so many enemies? Why haven't they all been crushed? If he is reigning, why so many enemies? Well, Psalm 110 answers that question as well. After his exaltation in heaven, the king of glory now, verse 1, waits. He waits for God to subdue all his enemies. This is one of those mysteries Israel couldn't see clearly. But Psalm 110.1 teaches us that there is a period of delay between the exaltation of the king and the day of his power. Hebrews 2.8 will say, We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we do see him crowned with glory and honor. He is king. He is ruling. But not all of his enemies have been subdued. Not yet. They will be, but for now, he waits. And how does it make you feel to know that your king is acquainted with waiting and delay? God has a great blessing for the king of glory. He is going to rule over all his enemies and usher in the new and better Eden, a paradise of rest, but not just yet. His kingdom has begun, but it is not complete. Every day he adds to it, but he waits. He waits for more people to leave the kingdom of the snake, to join his kingdom of righteousness and peace. He waits. He endures the attacks of the enemy on the people he loves so much. He waits. And as a human priest, he grieves his people's pain. He understands their suffering, the suffering they endure when they are tempted. He waits, and he longs for justice for his people. He waits, and while he waits, he helps his people. He strengthens them with his spirit. He supplies their needs. He helps give utterance to their inarticulate cries. And he waits for the fulfillment of his blessing. Like Abraham, the king of glory waits. As David waited, so now David's lord and king waits. As Israel waited for the advent of their king, their king now waits to rule over all his enemies. And none of this should surprise us. 
Of course there is a waiting period. I mean, knowing what you know about God, why do you think he waits to send the king and his army on the day of his power to crush all remaining enemies? Why does he wait? I think I heard somebody say it. Because God is merciful, and he himself is patiently waiting for more people to hear his words and embrace his king. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. On this side of history, we know the King has come. And contrary to Israelite expectations, he didn't come to judge his enemies, not yet. He came to save them. But make no mistake, God will again deploy his king, this time on the day of his power, and he will come to execute judgment on those who stubbornly persist in their rebellion. But for now, he waits. And while he waits, perhaps your children will hear his voice and believe. Perhaps your husband will heed God's many warnings. Maybe it's your neighbor, your sister, your child's coach, your coworker, maybe they will all hear and believe. While God waits, any who hear his words can call on the name of this king priest and God's blessing of eternal life in the kingdom of God in a world untouched by the curse or a single enemy will be theirs. Let's pray. Oh God, what a treasure your word is to us. We confess we do not understand it as we should. We can sometimes still be so dull of hearing. But keep speaking, Father, and by your spirit, lead us into all truth. Help us to be mediators of your blessing to those around us for the sake of your glorious kingdom, King Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.